Tonight, following in the footsteps of legendary singer Harry Chapin, Long Island Cares is working to feed over 200,000 hungry New Yorkers each year. Plus, a look at the groundbreaking urban farming initiative reclaiming the power of agriculture for women and communities of color. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. We continue our coverage on hunger in New York State with a focus tonight on Long Island. There are over 200,000 people in Long Island currently suffering from food insecurity, and almost 70,000 of them are children. Long Island Cares, the food bank originally founded by the late Grammy award-winning artist Harry Chapin, is working very hard to change that by providing millions of meals and workforce development programs to Long Islanders in need. And joining us now to talk about those efforts as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America is the president and CEO of Long Island Cares, Paul Pachter. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Raphael. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Paul, first of all, you know, in New York City, uh, food insecurity exploded uh, during the pandemic. Um, and, this, and although the situation improved, uh, the numbers of people in the city with food insecurity are still way above how they were pre-pandemic. Is that the situation in Long Island? Yes, uh, it is. You know, during the first two years of covid Long Island Cares provided 25 temporary pop-up distribution food sites uh, here in Nassau and Suffolk County. And during that time, we saw an additional 223,000 people come for emergency food assistance. And these are people that never uh, visited a food pantry in the past. So as COVID was beginning to expand, there were 230,000 people on Long Island in need. And that quickly jumped to close to 480,000. Well, what are the numbers now quickly, if you can, if you can tell me? Well, we're back to about 240, 250,000 people, with most of it being driven by inflation and the high yeah. cost of goods. Well, let's talk about inflation. I mean, it, you know, for those of us who buy our own food, I mean, it's staggering. With the simplest, you know, milk and eggs. It's just out, out of this world. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's got to be affecting you in, in, in some really profound way. Yeah, it's, you know, affecting us in a few ways. First of all, it's resulted in what we're looking at as a 48 to 50 percent increase in the number of people visiting the emergency food network. And that equates to about 42,000 new people. The other impact that it's having on Long Island Cares is that, like most food banks uh, in the country, we purchase the majority of the food that we distribute to people in need. While food drives and corporate donations are critical, 
it's not the main source of food that comes into a food bank. It's the purchasing of food. And we've been seeing anywhere between 30 and 40% increases in our prices. To give you a, a clear example, four years ago, we were paying approximately 79 cents a pound for food, and now we're paying $1.29 per pound. So that's really stretching our resources. So, so even as this is happening, Governor Hochul's most recent budget proposal calls for a $22 million cut to funding for food banks across the state. First of all, what's a rationale for that, given what you've just said? And secondly, what will that mean for you and for other food providers? Mm -hmm. When that's it's an excellent question, and it's something that's been on our mind now since the governor proposed her 2023 executive budget. The $22 million that uh, she's seeking to reduce uh, in funding is part of the Hunger Prevention and Nutrition Assistance Program overseen by the New York State Department of Health. That provides funding for the 10 food banks throughout the state to purchase food, to provide some support in terms of infrastructure for our member agencies. It was always our understanding in 2022 that when the additional funding was provided, that it was going to stabilize the base funding for the HIPNAP program. Uh, most of our state legislators were under the impression that the $22 million was added to the base to support the food banks moving forward. Unfortunately, I don't know where the communication got uh, messed up, but now it looks as if a proposed budget reduces the $22 million. And at a time where we're seeing such a dramatic increase in the number of people and the cost of goods for us doing business, this is just the wrong time to even consider reducing that kind of funding. So, uh, as we say, it's a proposed budget. It hasn't been right. passed. It hasn't been signed. So what are you and your fellow food providers doing to try to make sure that it doesn't happen? And maybe that the the, the funds are actually increased. Mm -hmm. Well, what we're doing right now is working very closely with our state legislative delegation here on Long Island in a bipartisan manner. We've already uh, conducted two group meetings with legislators or their aides to discuss the funding package, to share with them the data that we're seeing in terms of the increase in need, uh, explaining to our legislators what the cost of doing business is as a food bank. We're still seeing uh, delays in the supply chain. Certainly the increase in fuel costs are passed on to us because it costs a great deal to you know pump diesel fuel into your trucks. So we are advocating almost on a daily basis with the governor's staff, with the legislature. Uh, we're very fortunate in New York to have a state association feeding New York State, and they're very active right now in advocating for the continuation of the 22 million. Are you, optimistic, uh, there's are you optimistic that you're going to be able to change this? I am. I am because one of the things that I'm very, very confident about and comfortable with, Raphael, is the the passion that our state delegation has over this issue of food insecurity. They're getting the phone calls every day from their constituents. You know, as you know, most recently, the additional SNAP benefit on a federal level, COVID SNAP, the food stamp program, uh, sunsetted. There's hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people that receive that benefit. And now 
on top of losing the funding for the uh, HIPNAP program, these individuals are now seeing a reduction of $95 a month, you know, to buy food. So this can really be a perfect storm. Yeah. Well, listen, this is where you come in, you know, um, you step in to provide food for the people with food insecurities, whether they have uh, government assistance or not. Give us a sense of, of, of what you do um, and where you do it at your various locations. Well, Long Island Cares and the Harry Chapin Food Bank currently supports about 318 local organizations. These are your emergency food pantries, the soup kitchens, senior citizen daycare programs. And, you know, Monday through Friday, we deliver uh, annually about 12 million pounds of food to support these organizations. And that equates to about 10.5 million meals. So, you know, in addition to providing the food, we're also providing our own programs, mobile outreach delivery of food to the homeless, to seniors, to veterans. Uh, on the weekends, we have a, a children's food truck that goes out to high need communities and delivers a grab and go breakfast to children in need. Uh, we're working with a lot of organizations in terms of identifying where high needs are and where we need to invest most of our resources. We also where are your where are your greatest needs in Long Island? Well, our greatest needs right now, if you look at Long Island, are in very diverse communities. So we're talking about the village of Freeport, uh, Huntington Station, Hampton Bays, Bethpage, uh, and soon, of course, to be open in Valley Stream with our satellite programs, where we operate our own food pantries, mm -hmm. uh, which are open five days a week. But we're we're seeing need coming, you know, from all different corners of the island with the most significant increase right now being with our seniors and also newly arrived immigrants. Yeah. Now, um, you kind of touched on this, I believe, but but not only do you have your locations, uh, you also have um a program called Mobile Outreach Resource Enterprise mm -hmm. Program, where you actually go to people, you know, right. where it's convenient for them. Talk a little bit about that quickly. The mobile outreach resource environment is really a mobile pantry on wheels, where we're able to dispatch the uh, vehicle to different communities to work alongside our member agencies to provide even more food for people in need. So we find that vehicle going out to different community events where people are, you know, coming together, like, you know, an evening uh, standout type of program, veteran support programs, because not everyone on Long Island is able to get to their community pantry, especially those people that have mobility problems. So we have these mobile units that go out and deliver the food where people are located. So as I said in the introduction, this was your organization was founded by Harry Chapin. There's his photograph uh, uh, behind you. I knew members, I know members of the Chapin family. He was very close to his brother, Jim, who unfortunately, a great guy, unfortunately mm -hmm. passed away young too. From them, I learned about this profound passion that Harry had for this mission of feeding the hungry. To what degree does that passion still influence? Long Harry's Island? passion is visible uh, through all aspects of Long Island Cares. You know, when Harry founded Long Island Cares, his focus was really for the organization to help people lift themselves out of the cycle of poverty and become more self-sufficient. 
And we've stuck to that uh, goal that he had by creating workforce development programs, job training, career counseling, and a lot of the mobile outreach and social advocacy work that we do. So we've stayed, you know, for 43 years, we've stayed pretty close to Harry's initial dream. Yeah. So we have just about a minute left, and I'd like you to, to tell our audience who would like to participate, help with their time or their resources, what should they do? Well, for people that would like to contribute to Long Island Cares or volunteer their time and talents, it's a very easy process. You can visit our website at licares.org and register to volunteer or make a donation. You can visit any one of our six satellite locations throughout Long Island to do the same thing. Or you can basically walk in our front door at our corporate office or call us at 631-582-FOOD. And if they want to contribute money, what do they do? They can go on our website at licares.org and make a uh, donation of their thank choice. You. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you so much for the uh, for the wonderful work that you're doing there on Long Island, heroic work. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you, to have met you. Thank you so much. Farming in America has long been fabled as one of the purest, most honest forms of labor. Seeds are planted, crops are tended to, and a harvest is collected. It's work that's often considered noble and manly. And thanks to more than a century of American iconography, it's also work that's closely associated with white men. But if you peel back the myths of American farming, you'll find a much more complicated and nuanced narrative, one that the founders of Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York, are hoping to not only celebrate but share in a more honest fashion. So as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative, examining poverty and opportunity in America, I'm joined now by Karen Washington, one of the co-founders of Rise and Root Farm. Karen, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. So first, let's just start with the farm itself. For people, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing about this for the first time. What is Rise and Root Farm? How did it come into existence? What is its purpose? So Rise and Root Farm is for women. Two of us are women of color. Uh, two of us are white women. The four of us are rooted in food justice. And we got our start from doing community garden work in New York City. And through working in community gardens and becoming good friends, we always said one day we want to farm together. We want to farm together to scale up, but also to make sure that everyone has a right to fresh local produce. And so we took this journey. It was, a, a, to be honest with you, it was a two-year journey going up and down the Hudson Valley in New York, and New York, and finally stumbling on Chester, New York, where we are now. We have three acres of land. It's in the black dirt, and literally black dirt. Mm -hmm. uh, we grow the best vegetables, but also well, there's a little weed pressure. Well, also, I would wonder, um, what is significant about the food justice movement that you're involved in? Because there's, we've done a lot of stories where we've talked about the fact that there are communities, particularly in the Bronx and various neighborhoods and some of the other outer boroughs in New York, that are food deserts where people just cannot get access to fresh, healthy vegetables. So first of all, I want to tell the audience, Jenna, don't use the word food desert because we don't live in a desert. If you look in our communities, uh, what food deserts really says is an outside term really to denote the fact that there is a limited access to food. 
We do have food. We have unhealthy food, the junk food, the processed food, the fast food. And so what we're trying to do really at Rise and Root is really to, first of all, peel away our, our, our responsibility and our history around farming. First of all, if you look globally, most of the farmers throughout the world are women. That's number one. Number two, if you look about the history of food in our country, our history of food was done on the backs of enslaved and indigenous people. Growing up in America, I was always taught that farming was slave labor until I started to peel back the history and found out the truth of why we were brought here. We were brought here because of our knowledge of agriculture. We brought the seeds in our head, the foundation of food in this country. And once you tell young people about that, our place in agriculture, the whole narrative shifts. And now you are embodied with power power to go back to the land, power to grow food, power to be able to feed your own family. And that's what we're trying to do at Rise and Root Farm. Why is it so important to not only, first of all, tell that narrative and get, first of all, thank you also for clarifying that you're absolutely right. There are no deserts in New York. Um, (laughs) But seriously, though, uh, to not only make sure that people are clear on what the uh, history of farming is, but also that this is also women's work that, as you said, most farms are run by women. Yes, it is women's work and it's a powerful thing. The problem is, is that again, most of the power when we talk about farming is with white men, but yet globally women are doing the work. What we do lack is of course, capital, access to technology and access to land. But that's starting to change now because people are starting, especially people of color, are starting to go back to the land because they know land within their family, its legacy, its history. Knowing the fact that you can grow your own food makes you powerful. And so, again, that's a narrative that young people are now catching on and want to go back to farm. Now, of course, you were saying that Rise and Root came almost grew out of or outgrew a urban farm in the city. And I'm wondering if part of that, if that fits into a larger movement as especially now with the COVID crisis, we've seen even more people interested in knowing their food supply source, being able to grow their own food in a neighborhood plot or backyard if they're able to. It has been overwhelming the amount of people now that are reaching out to us and other urban growers about coming back to the land, how do we get started in community gardens, how do we find land, because they understand at this point in time with this pandemic, it's the healthy food that is going to make us better. It's food is medicine. And so people now want to know, first of all, where their food comes from, who's growing it, if it was sprayed with pesticides and insecticides. And when we talk about justice, we want to make sure that People understand from the person that puts that seed in the ground to the plate that's on your table that the workers have been treated humanely and have been paid a wage, a fair wage. And again, you're talking about so many layers upon layers that we're learning, not just about, uh, you know, the food that we're eating, but of course the supply chains and um, some of the mass industrial farms that this country also has. I'm wondering a little bit about the relationship to food, because as you mentioned, it's not that there isn't food in a lot of these communities. It's just bad food. It's processed food. Does Rise and Rue also work with uh, people's relationship to food? Because, for example, a lot of people, if they join a CSA, they might get a box, you know, every week. And there's usually something in there that you have no idea what it is or how to cook or what it tastes like, et cetera. And 
I would assume that the further away you are from a relationship to fresh produce, the more likely you're going to find more vegetables to feel sort of foreign. Rising Root has been a journey, a journey. People from the city have been following, following us when we left New York City up to Chester, New York. We have really maintained our roots in the city because, believe it or not, all of us are teachers of farm school. So farm school is an urban ag school that teaches food justice, that teaches people how to grow food, that ha- to teach people that relationship that they should have, to asking questions about where their food comes from, um, what is it that... Um, they can use within their vicinity. We tell people, you know what? If you don't have a community garden, you can have you can start growing on a windowsill, a backyard, a front yard, somebody else's yard. And what this pandemic has really shown is that people understand the relationship between food and health. Um, you had mentioned the fact uh, we talked about a food desert, and I like to tell people we don't call it a food desert. I've coined the term food apartheid because I want people to start thinking about the intersection of food along race, along demographics, and along economics. And we need to have those hard conversations to make people feel uncomfortable to be comfortable. And so at Rising Root, we have those conversations. We have workshops. People come to our farm, um, not only to, to, to grow, help grow our food and to see the process of growing food, but they come and listen to our story because our story is the American story. Our story is the American dream. Our story is giving back to our ancestors who for so long have been nameless and faceless. And we're trying to put a name in the face of those who came before us. We stand on the shoulders of kings and queens. And we want to make sure people understand that. So it sounds like Rise and Root isn't just uh, a teaching farm um, or perhaps is a teaching farm in a larger sense where you're not just teaching about farming and sharing that knowledge, but also the history of farming. From your perspective, how do you think the narrative got so driven in uh, a very singular direction about who is a farmer in America? It's all, you know, it boils down to the power dynamics. That's all it does. It boils down to a power dynamics of, of, of a group of people uh, having power over others. And so what we're trying to do is peel back that power, that power narrative. And so let's bring the truth into light. Let's bring the truth into light. We have over 7.5 billion people. And let's think about, we have a handful of organizations, companies that control our food system. How is that possible? How is it that we don't take a stand when it comes to food justice, call out the injustices that we see along the food chain? Now, people are starting to question the food system. They look within their communities and they see how bad the food is, but yet they go into other communities, more affluent communities, and see the difference in those communities when it comes to food. So now if we're talking about food justice, if we're talking about equity, if we're talking about food sovereignty and the right for all people to have, then food, healthy food and water are the two things that are human rights for everybody. And we want to make sure at Rise and Root that we sound that alarm, that we make people to, to go out and really stand up for that. Speak out, speak up, speak out, because food and water are human rights for all. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm wondering, uh, in addition to all of the work that Rise and Root does, if someone were to want to get involved or were 
would want to figure out, you know, there is a plot of land in my neighborhood and I would love to turn it into a community garden, but I have absolutely no idea where to start. Is Rise and Root a good source for that? And how do you work with people? Rise and Root is a good source because we've never left, let go of our connections in New York City. So in New York City, there's a huge community garden movement. Um, there's an office called Green Thumb. And we tell people three things. Number one, if you find a plot of land, find out who owns it. Because say, for instance, the city owns it and they have no plans for development and you've got at least 10 people that want to grow food, chances are you can have that lot as a community garden. If it's privately owned, ask the owner if you can use and you can grow there. There are so many institutions that also have vacant lots. There are churches, there are synagogues, there are libraries, there are museums and institutions, believe it or not, have vacant land that would, you know, be, I guess, very, very interested in helping anyone grow food, especially at this point in time. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time together, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask, if you could explain a little bit about what you were saying about the black dirt and how that actually affects the quality of the produce you're able to produce. Oh my goodness. So is the <laughs> black dirt region. It is high in organic matter. And as a result, we grow the best vegetables and herbs, but also the best weeds. Now, I have a little thing with weeds because at one time I used to think weeds were bad, but you know what? There are a lot of weeds that are edible. So I've sort of changed my sort of. I sort no, of I completely agree. I recently discovered dandelion greens. Dandelion greens. Oh, there's so many things. Uh, um, we were just picking on up some purslane. Purslane is high in uh, omega fat. It's really, really good. And so uh, I want people to come up, come visit Rise and Rue. We have community days the last Saturday of the month. Because of COVID, we've really curtailed the amount of people that we allow, so 10 people max. But follow us. Follow us on our website. Follow us on Facebook. Oh, we, you, one thing we say about our farm, we open our farm to everyone. It's a healing farm. It goes beyond just growing food. It's growing community. And so we are a community farm, and we welcome all that really want to promote food, just, food justice and, and, and social adhesion. Cohesion. Well, Karen Washington, thank you so much for sharing not only the work that you do, you're so passionate about at Rise and Root Farm, but also the passionate work behind the community gardens that we've seen pop up all over the city. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.